Father, we thank you so much for this privilege to come into your presence. We've come in with thanksgiving in our hearts. We've come with joy. We've come with singing. And now we're asking that you, through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts. In the silence of our own hearts, we just want to open our hearts and give you full permission to speak to us in the way you choose this morning. Thank you, Father. There's no promise that you've given us more frequently than that of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you want to speak to our hearts. May we continue to have an open ear to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When I was younger, I was a little gullible. My, friend, my uh, brother had friends who were quite a bit older than me because my brother is about seven years older than I was. So I was probably eight or nine years old, and his, his friends were more like 15 years old, 13, 14, 15 years old. And sometimes they would try to get the best of me. I remember one day, it was after school, and we were all hanging out around the academy, and we were outside, there were some bushes there, and I remember I was just kind of sitting there wondering what to do, hanging out as, as a child and just waiting until we were going to get picked up. We were walking around this one bush, and my brother's friends were hanging out with me too, and I'm not sure where my brother was at that moment. But there I found this bush, and on that bush were these beautiful red berries. And I saw these red berries, and I said, I'm hungry. I don't want to wait for dinner. I think I'm going to have a snack now. So I grabbed a handful of these red berries, and I was contemplating, I wonder if these red berries taste good. When one of my brother's friends came over, Donnie, Donnie came over and he said, hey, Zach, what are you looking at? I was like, look at these red berries. They look delicious. He's like, oh, yeah, those do look delicious. You should eat those. (laughs) Okay, I think I will. So I was looking at it, just my mouth watering, seeing these red berries. I was just about to take a whole mouthful of berries when my brother came walking around the corner. And he was just walking around the corner, and all of a sudden he saw me with this handful of berries. He's like, Zach, stop, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just going to eat these berries. Donnie told me to. He's like, Donnie, what are you doing? Don't eat those berries. You're going to die, and Mom's going to kill me. (laughs) I didn't know they were poisonous berries. I believed Donnie. But I'm thankful that my brother could see the danger. He recognized the danger that I was in that I didn't recognize. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that I was about to take my own life with some red berries that looked so juicy. It's interesting. As we look at Christian history, oftentimes the church is so confused about what are some of the most dangerous attacks of Satan on their existence. We talked about that last week as we looked in Revelation chapter 2. You can go there in your Bibles. We looked in Revelation chapter 2 at the church of Pergamum. Pergamus was a church that had the enemy no longer trying to persecute them from the outside. That was earlier on when we had the church of, uh, the persecuted church of Smyrna was the church that was being burned at the stake, being fed to the lions. All these things were happening to that church. But we have the church of Pergamum where now instead of attacking from the outside, the enemy was attacking from within. Like the legend of the story of the Trojan horse that was used to attack Troy. We find this continuing and even intensifying 
in the church of Thyatira, beginning in verse 18. Go there with me to Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Another little bit of imagery from back in Revelation 1 where Jesus shows up to John in this glorious vision. But instead of being called the Son of Man like there, now he's saying, this is what the Son of God is saying. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. Wow, that's a great list, isn't it? Wouldn't you like for Jesus to show up right now to you and say, I know your works, I know your love, I know your service, I know your faith, I know that you're patient. That's an amazing list for Jesus to list about a church. I know these things. And not only that, he goes on to say, the last are more than the first. Now, what did we find back about the first church, the church of Ephesus? They were doing good works, but he said, you have lost your first love Somehow it's not the same. You don't have the same passion, the same zeal that you had before. Whereas here with Thyatira, it's getting even better. Even more of your works are being performed for me. There's even more faith, more service, more good works going on. But then it goes on to say this, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So you remember, first of all, we heard about the Nicolaitans and how they were a group of people there who were bothering the Christians, teaching them some false doctrine about not having to be faithful to Jesus. In the church of Pergamum, we learned about those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who are also associated with the Nicolaitans. Now, we talked about the story of Balaam. Pretty bad story, where Balaam goes and he tries to curse the people of God, and then that doesn't work, so he sends a stumbling block. He sends harlots in. He sends an attack from the inside. But as if that weren't intense enough, we are now on to one of the worst characters in all of Bible history. Have you ever met a person named Jezebel? Let's see if there are any hands. You have? Okay, wow. There's, it's pretty rare that you'll find a person named Jezebel, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't name people Jezebel, but the character of Jezebel, if you read in 1 Kings about the story and 2 Kings about the story of Jezebel, this woman was unlike any other woman in Bible history. This woman was the one who Ahab thought that he would form an alliance with the king of Tyre by marrying Jezebel. And as he marries Jezebel, she brings with her these prophets of Baal. Not only does she bring in, though, the Baal worship, like you see with so many of these marriages, which were not consecrated by God, oftentimes they'd bring in idolatry, and that, that happened in a lot of different kings' lives. But with Ahab, Ahab actually let her put to death the prophets of God. Because we read the story about Obadiah, one of the king's men who actually rescued a hundred of the prophets while the rest of them were being murdered. He took them off and he hid them in a cave so that they wouldn't be destroyed with the rest of them. Jezebel hated God's people. Jezebel hated the prophets of God. Jezebel wanted to do whatever it took to stop the true worship of God. 
You see the intensification here? This isn't just Balaam, who Balaam was there and he was just trying to deceive the people so that he could get some money, but Jezebel was actively hunting down the church of God and trying to kill them. In fact, Elijah, that great man of God who went up on Mount Carmel and had, hopefully we'll be able to talk more about Elijah. There's so much tied into the end times that we're living in in the life of Elijah. But Elijah, after he has that amazing experience on Mount Carmel, he runs from Jezebel because Jezebel says he's going to, she's going to kill him. This lady was scary. She was terrifying. She's not the person that you'd want for your next door neighbor. Jezebel was not a friendly character at all. So what is this church doing? It says that the church of Thyatira, I have this against you because you allow, you tolerate, you are okay with that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Thyatira was a city, again, in Asia Minor. This city was not as prominent as the last three cities that we've looked at. This city, though, is mentioned once in the Bible in Acts chapter 16 with a lady named Lydia. Lydia was the first convert of Paul when he went to Philippi. You might remember that story. And it specifically mentions that she was a dyer of purple cloths. So she made this, there was a, a root near Thyatira where they would take this root and they would use it to make this beautiful cloth that was famous around the area. It was a city that was on the crossroads and a lot of trade came through the cities And it was known for this special dye. Now, in this group of, uh, in this city, those who were a part of the dyeing work or some of the other trades there, they all formed what was called trade guilds. Now, these trade guilds were something that in order to join them, you had to participate in these feasts that would take place that were focused on pleasing the gods in order that your group of tradesmen could be blessed. Now, this might take different forms, but oftentimes there was idol worship going on. There was food that was being sacrificed to idols. There was also a lot of sexual immorality in these things. So while this city didn't struggle with the emperor worship so much as the others like we've talked about, this city struggled with the peer pressure that came from wanting to succeed, wanting to have a good job, wanting to have a successful career, And in order to do that, I have to compromise in just this little area. So Thyatira, the church of Thyatira, faced some difficult circumstances. But not only that, as we look at Christian history, this represents a time period in Christian history. We've seen that pretty clearly, that while there were current events that were going on in the life of John, these are written as prophecies for what was going to take place in the Christian church. So what took place in the period of Thyatira? You remember that the church of Pergamon led us up to about 538 A.D. In 538 A.D., something happened that again promoted the church to be even more powerful than before. We talked about how Constantine made a decree that helped Christianity, and that was in the church of Pergamum. Christianity became popular, it became wealthy, Constantine wanted everybody to be a part of the Christian church, and he began to baptize the pagan symbols, like we saw what was in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. 
you had that statue of St. Peter, and if you go there, you see it today. It has, if you look closely at it, it's actually not a statue of Peter, but it's actually a statue of Jupiter, a pagan god that was worshipped. You had uh, a Venus who was worshipped, or Isis, and this was worshipped, and this uh, female goddess was substituted, and then they called it the Virgin Mary and the child. So they took pagan ideas, and they put them into church so that they could invite their pagan counterparts to come, and they could unite the empire together. We read last week how it said Constantine himself made the decree that on the venerable day of the sun, let everybody worship together. So he took sun worship, which took place on the first day of the week, and he said, well, Jesus rose on that day, so let's have everybody come together and we're going to worship on this day, uniting Christians and pagans together in a subtle but dangerous attack of the enemy. So now, in 538, what takes place in 538 is the Emperor Justinian, the Roman Emperor. The Roman Empire is the biggest, most powerful empire at the time. He's having some struggles, and he's over in the eastern part of the empire, and he's worried about the western part of his empire. And so what he does, and it's actually 534 that he first makes the decree, he makes this decree that the bishop of Rome should have all ecclesiastical authority. So the bishop of Rome, which is now where the pope uh, dwells, would have all the ecclesiastical authority, and not only just ecclesiastical authority, but he would actually begin to have political authority because he would be ruling over the western part, and pretty soon he became the most powerful leader in Europe. The book Church History, Century 2, Chapter 2, says this, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. It was just basically pagan ideas were brought into the church. And this is our common history as Christians. You and I are Christians today. We are part of the Christian church. But as we look back and we see our history, we see that the church wasn't always faithful. That the church didn't always stay true to Jesus. And we talked about last week how that really is intolerable to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to come back with that sword that comes out of my mouth if you don't repent. Because Jesus doesn't want us to have this cancerous uh, evil in our lives that separates us from Jesus. He wants to do whatever it takes to cut that out of our lives. We find Jesus described a little bit differently though in the church of Thyatira. Like I said, it's a, it's a church where we find a union of church and state. Here you have a picture of the Emperor Justinian as he crowns that bishop there in Rome and made what we find today that the bishop of Rome is the one who has both ecclesiastical authority and also government authority. It's a union of church and state together. This power led him to uh, exercise all kinds of things. He became known as the one who who would determine who were the heretics, who were the enemies of God. And because of this, we came to the Inquisition, where lots of Christians were put to death in various ways. They were persecuted by the church. Here you had those who were trying to be faithful, trying to follow Jesus, who were persecuted 
by the Christian faith. So what were the steps to compromise that took place in the Christian church? Well, first of all, it started off with traditions, right? You had traditions that had been going on that Christians worshipped, say, for example, on Sunday, or Christians wanted the traditions of the pagan uh, uh, religions to be combined with their worship. Then you had them add in something called penances. What are penances? Penances were when you make a, a mistake, when you've sinned, that you would come to the priest and you'd confess to a priest and they would give you a certain amount of things to do in order to rectify that wrong. Now at first, this seems harmless. It can be good. Even the Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another. But for any man to be given authority to forgive sin, the Bible tells us is blasphemy. That's why the Pharisees wanted to put Jesus to death because he claimed that he had the authority to forgive sin, which he did. But when we take the authority of Jesus and we confer it to a man and we take our eyes off of Jesus, it distracts us from what really matters. It puts a step between us and Jesus. And Jesus is passionate about your heart. Jesus is passionate about having as close a relationship with you as possible. And so he doesn't want any steps between you and him. He wants you to be able to go straight to his heart. You have an advocate in heaven. You have a great high priest. And Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that you can go boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need because you have a great high priest who is Jesus Christ. So penances began to compromise the church, began to distract the church. Now along with this came something called indulgences. This is something that the church leadership began to figure out that they were able through indulgences to gain a lot of money. If you find that the Christian church became extremely wealthy during this time, that's partially because they had this concept from paganism of the immortality of the soul. That, hey, you die, but you don't really die, so your soul goes on living. And then they developed this concept, well, your soul doesn't just go on living, but it either goes to heaven or to hell or to purgatory. Now, I challenge you to look in your Bible and find purgatory anywhere in it. There's no such thing as purgatory in the Bible. But here's what they began to do. They began to sell indulgences. Now, this is our common Christian history. This is what took place as a Christian church. The Christian church began to sell indulgences, which was where you could pay money and get your grandma out of purgatory faster. Or if you went on a special pilgrimage and you saw this special relic and you, of course, paid some money, then if that took place, you could free your dad from purgatory, from the torture that they were undergoing or that, that nebulous space that they were in. You could finally get them to heaven. In fact, one famous guy who was selling indulgences said, as soon as your coin in the coffer rings, that soul from purgatory springs. Not only indulgences, though, we looked at how there were images. You had the image of Jupiter. You had the, the image of Venus that represented the Virgin Mary. And people began to worship these. They began to make pilgrimages to these images in order to Try to find their way to God. And here you have sincere individuals wanting and honestly desiring a relationship with God who are being sincerely deceived. 
Little by little, they're being separated from Jesus, and they have no idea. Now, if you know what this time period is commonly called in history, it's called the Dark Ages. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian church didn't do a lot of good for humanity during this time. In fact, Martin Luther, who was later one of the foremost critics of the Christian church of this time, he said that the hospitals that were developed during this time helped more people than ever before in history because Christians were the ones who were running hospitals. They were doing a lot of good things. Jesus said, I know your faithful works. I know your service. I know all that you've been doing. But I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel. And throughout the Bible, immorality, sexual immorality specifically, or harlotry, is a representation of when God's people mix error with truth. When they begin to go away from what God has given them when they're distracted from following Jesus with their whole hearts. You had church hierarchy, you had human dogmas, all of these things were leading to Jesus being hidden. In fact, by the time Martin Luther comes along, Martin Luther only found a Bible because it was chained to the wall in a library. He didn't have access to the Bible like you and I have today. We live in unprecedented times today where most of us can have the Bible on our cell phone. We can have five Bibles at home. We, we have the Bible so much that we don't appreciate the value of it like they did back then. But in these dark ages, I believe that it was especially dark because the Word of God was missing. Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 2 and go back with me to, to first Peter, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter is telling the, encouraging the church. This is a general epistle written to the entire Christian church. He says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a what? A light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Don't let any person tell you that this book was just written by men. Don't let people tell you that you can't trust this book because humanity has had too much contact with it because God has been looking out for the Bible throughout Christian history. Even during this time that was known as the Dark Ages, you find faithful Bible-believing Christians. You had Columba, who was a missionary back all the way back in the 5th and 6th century, he was a missionary in Scotland. He lived on the island of Iona. And he would witness to Scotland and to England, remaining faithful to the Word of God. During this time, you had the Waldensians. The Waldensians were people who lived in the, the highlands, in the Alps, 
well, they didn't live there originally, actually, but the Waldensians were a group of people who were studying the Word of God. They were wanting to remain faithful to the Bible and the Bible only for their life and their, their doctrine. But as they were doing this, as they were teaching people from the Bible, the church began to persecute the Waldensian people, began to pursue them into the mountains. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that the earth opened up its mouth and it allowed them to come in. And they were able to hide in these valleys up in the Alps, but they were trying to stay faithful to the Bible. Here you can see a picture of a Waldensian house. Here you can see where they had their, their Bible reading rooms. They would take their kids from the time they were little, and they would begin to train them in the Word of God. Train them so thoroughly that some of these Waldensian kids would have a whole book of the Bible memorized. They'd have the, the Gospel of John memorized. They'd have the Gospel of Mark memorized. They'd have the book of Genesis memorized. And as they got older, they would be copying the Bible. It would help them to remember it. But then their parents would take that child. As he got older, became a teenager, and he was becoming the age where he could enter the university. And they would continue to teach him to be faithful to Scripture then the mother would take and she'd take a manuscript that had been copied from the Word of God. You remember this time, it's not like today where we can just pick up the Bible from anywhere, but the Bible was rare, it was precious, and she would take a precious copy of a portion of the Bible. And she would take it and she would sew it inside of the clothing of the child. Well, at this time they're not a child, teenager. Sew it inside their clothing and they would head off into the city to become a Waldensian student at a college. They would join uh, the classes, and as they were making friends in school, they would begin to watch for those who were sensitive to the Holy Spirit's moving. They would begin to watch for those who maybe were open to hear about the Bible, and little by little, they would begin to call their friends aside, and they'd begin to take that manuscript and share it with their friends until there were little revivals that were taking place here and there throughout Europe, and the, the church was just wondering, what is going on? Why is this happening? And it kept realizing it's these Waldensians. They keep spreading the word of God. But what did Peter say? It's like a light in the darkness. If you're feeling darkness in your life, I can't encourage you enough. Go to the word of God. It's the word of God that's a light into our path. It's a lamp for us. It brings Clarity where there's darkness in our lives. It helps us to see the way through any and every problem that we face because it reveals Jesus to us. And that's why the enemy is so passionate about taking the Bible away from us. That's why the enemy wants to do whatever he can to distract us from the Bible. Today we have plenty of access to the Bible, but are we really reading it? Do we know it like those who recognize that, hey, if I don't memorize this book, I may not have it later on in my life. And so they memorized it. They poured over Scripture. It meant so much to them. Whereas today, because I have so many Bibles at home, I figure, well, I could read it tomorrow. Or I'd rather watch this or do that because it's a little more exciting. All the while wondering why there's so much darkness in my life. When Jesus has said, this is the light and the darkness. This is what will reveal your path. This is what can give you the light of life. Go back to Revelation chapter 2 with me. Revelation chapter 2, we pick it up in verse 21. This is after talking about how Jezebel would tempt the church to commit sexual immorality. 
to eat things sacrificed to idols, the church was becoming compromised in this time period. And it was tolerated by the majority of Christians except for a few small groups that were faithful to Jesus. Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. This is one of the longest time periods that we look at. It goes from about 538 until the beginning of the 16th century, the early 1500s. This time period, God gave the church a chance, gave Christians a chance to repent. And you find again and again, like I mentioned, Columba was sent to try to enlighten the church. You had the Waldensians who tried to do whatever they could to take the truth so that the church would repent. But again and again, you find the church turning back. Then look at what it says. It's very interesting. Verse 23. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds. And the, Sorry, I skipped verse 22. Go back to verse 22 first. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, this great tribulation is the same great tribulation that you find Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 24. This is the time period that we call the Dark Ages, and we call it the Dark Ages today because it was very dark, not just spiritually, but even physically. Do you know some of the things that took place during the Dark Ages? You had the bubonic plague, just to list one thing. This popped up several different times. During uh, One time it took 25 to 50 million lives, but that was early on. It popped back up in, I think it was the 1300s. You can look it up. The bubonic plague came up in the 1300s. And of all the population of Europe, one-third died from the bubonic plague. A third of the population died from this plague. Do you see how turning away from God, turning away from the light that He's given us, it begins to take away that protecting hand of God. Jesus wants to be there for you and I in our life. He wants to be there to do everything possible for me. He wants to save me from eating those berries. But if I choose to be distracted... If I choose to go ahead and ignore what he's saying to me, if I choose not to look to the light, to look to Jesus, then that poison is going to have its way in my life. And we know that the wages of sin is death. John 10.10 says that I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly, but it says, but the thief has come that he may what? Steal and kill and destroy. You see, the enemy comes into your life and he wants to wreak all kind of havoc. But if we stay faithful to Jesus, if we keep our eyes fixed on the Word of God, if we're daily letting that sword that we talked about carve out the sin in our life which is keeping us from Jesus, it will draw us so much closer to Jesus and it will give us a more abundant life. That doesn't mean life is going to be easy. That doesn't mean life is going to be perfect. But when you have Jesus, anything is worth facing and anything is worth going through. So we find that it says, I would cast them into a sickbed. Verse 23 said, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Here Jesus says, this is going to reveal to all the churches. This means all of Christian history. 
every one of the churches is going to realize from this time period that I recognize what's going on in your life. I am the one who searches the mind and I know the heart. I understand what's going on. How was Jesus described there at the beginning of this church? Back in verse 18, it says, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus is describing his own position as one who can see into our lives and recognize what's going on in our lives and he can help us out of the situations that we're in. Back in Psalm 139, our scripture reading, it really depicts this all-seeing omnipresence of God, that God recognizes what you're going through in your life, that he sees the dangers that you face. He sees when you're about to take a bite of those berries And it's going to be extremely harmful to your life. And he wants to do whatever he can to keep you from that. And he starts off with blessing. He tries to do everything possible to point you back to Jesus. But if necessary, he's going to let trials come into your life. Like he did in the dark ages. He was trying to allow God's people time to repent. Time to turn back. In Psalm 139, starting in verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Jesus sees when we sit down. He sees when we get up. He sees us constantly. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before you even say something, God already knows what you're going to say. God not only sees the present, but he sees into the future. That's why you want to trust in Jesus, because he knows what's coming in your life. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Because Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. And they see everything on this planet. They see everything in your life. They see every experience that you go through. You may feel like nobody understands. You may feel like nobody knows what you go through. But Jesus knows what you're going through. He sees it. He's marking it. And there is a coming day of judgment. Now this might be scary. I've heard people say, well, I'm a little scared because I think people are watching me, you know. And like one day I remember that my, a friend of mine had tape over the camera on their cell phone. And some of you might do this too because it's true that the cell phone can be taken over by somebody and they can actually look at you through your camera. Now I don't really mind most of the time if they're looking at me, hopefully they can read the Bible or or come to church, you know, it's fine if, they, if they're looking through my camera, I figure. But to know that somebody can see you anywhere and everywhere, whether you put tape over your cell phone or not, that could be a little scary, couldn't it? Do I really want God to be able to see me constantly? I feel so exposed, I feel so... But look at what it goes on to say. After talking about how the darkness is light to him, Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, 
And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my, unf- my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were not any of them. God foresaw you. You see, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he foreordained and predestined you to adoptions as sons and daughters of God. God allowed you to come into existence for a reason. And let me tell you, it is an amazing miracle. I'm no scientist, I'm no doctor. But to have a child is an amazing miracle. To have a specific being like you come into existence didn't take place by chance. You are here for a purpose. God chose you to come into existence. There were millions of combinations of your dad's cells and your mom's cells that could have come together and formed an entirely different person than you, but God saw you and he formed you. He wanted you to exist. He wanted you to be loved by him. And it tells us that Your days are written down in the book. He has a plan for your life. He wants for you to live an abundant life. Jesus has so much in store for us. Because look at the very next verse. When I think about, it's a little scary to think of somebody that can see me everywhere. Look at what God is thinking when he looks at you. Verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. When God's thinking about you, like it says, I think it's Zephaniah three seventeen. He's singing over you. He's rejoicing over you. God delights in you. He wants to live with you forever. And that's why it makes him so angry when the enemy comes in and deceives you. That's why it makes him so angry when people try to take this book away from you. That's why it makes him so angry when he, the enemy tries to trick you into sin. Because sin separates you from his infinite love. Goes on to say, How great is the sum of them. These are God's thoughts about you, those precious thoughts. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand when I awake, I am still with you. Then down in verse 23 and 24, our scripture reading. Search me, O God. David is able to pray this prayer because of what he knows about the goodness of God and those eyes of fire that are searching him. He's able to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I wish that I was willing in all of my life to allow God to search me like that. Just to be an open book to God. He sees it anyway. But so often I've tried to hide. I've tried to cover up my sin. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses his sins will prosper. Jesus just wants for you and I to have life. I remember, I think it was about the age of 13, when I began to get curious about some things. I began to look at some websites that no person should ever look at, I believe. I began to see things, and it was embarrassing to me that I made some of those choices that I did. So rather than telling 
my parents, hey, I'm struggling with pornography. What do you, can you help me out? I'm, I'm 13 years old and I don't know what I'm doing. Instead of that, I hid it. I, I covered my sin. I didn't want it to be exposed. I didn't want anybody to know what I was going through. And I can't help but think if only I had been open and honest. If only I had confessed, look, I messed up, I sinned, I need forgiveness. You know, that's the difference between the life of King David and King Saul. King David made a whole lot more mistakes, terrible mistakes, murderer, adulterer, so many mistakes, but he's the one who opened his heart and confessed. As soon as he recognized his wrong, he opened himself to Jesus, that searching gaze of Jesus, and he said, search me, know me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But instead of that, I struggled on for years. That sick habit that controlled my life. I can't help but wish. I can't help but think, what if I just turned it over to God? What if I'd ask somebody, would you help me? I'm struggling with this. Would you please do something? Pray for me. If I'd found a prayer partner, can't encourage you enough. Find somebody that you can be spiritually accountable to. When we try to go this journey on our own and we're struggling with things, and we think we can handle it on our own, so often we end up just falling. So often we end up just back in that same old rut. But when we come together, like Ecclesiastes says, one man by himself may fall down and who's going to help him up? But when two are together then they can help each other to stand. That's what God wants for your life. And you begin to see this in the church of Thyatira, in Christian history, around the, the um, 11th century, 12th century. You had people like John Huss who came along. John Huss was a disciple of Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the first one who began to get back to the Bible and began to translate the Bible into the common language. The problem was people couldn't read the Bible. They didn't have it in their language. And Wycliffe began to make translations of the Bible. So you have Huss who comes along and he says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to translate the Bible and to promote it to people. Now as Huss began to teach, the church began to come in upon him and to the Inquisition began to come after him because it wasn't popular in the Dark Ages to be faithful to Jesus, to focus on Jesus. But John Huss said this, Obedience to God is my motto, not obedience to man. I want that to be the motto of my life. Obedience to God. No matter what it costs, I'm willing to be faithful to Jesus. No matter what I'm going through, I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. Because look at what Jesus promises in the end of Revelation chapter 2. In the end of this prophecy to the Thyatiran church, verse 25, or actually verse 24, it says, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as many as you have not been taken prey by Jezebel's deceptions, by this corruption coming into the church, as many as you who have not had this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. 
And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? Second Peter compared it to the Word of God. But in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus says, He's talking about being the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. Jesus says, I am the morning star. If you want Jesus in your life, Jesus is here talking to the Tyrant church saying, just be faithful. Hang on to me and I'm going to come to you. You're going to have the morning star. You're going to have more of Jesus in your experience. And John Huss clung to Jesus. John Huss clung to Jesus to the point where he faced the church and the Inquisition taking him to the stake. In the book Great Controversy, it says, He was now delivered up to the secular authorities and led away to the place of execution. An immense procession followed, hundreds of men-at-arms, priests and bishops in their costly robes and the inhabitants of Constance. When he had been fastened to the stake and all was ready for the fire to be lighted, the martyr was once more exhorted to save himself by renouncing his errors. How easy would it have been at that point in time just to say, okay, yeah, I don't believe we have to have the Bible. I don't believe that that salvation is by grace and faith in Jesus. I, I don't believe these things. How easy would it have been for John Huss to deny the faith at that point in time? Think about my own life. When it comes to questions about the Sabbath, when it comes to guarding the edges of the Sabbath, when it comes to following Jesus because I love Him and keeping all of His commandments, am I willing to stand even in the little things? Because if I'm not able to stand in the little things, what makes me think I'm going to stand in the big things? But Huss said this, What error, said Huss, shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been with a view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition. And therefore, most joyfully will I confirm with my blood the truth which I have written and preached. Here is a man tied to the stake, ready to be burned, knowing that he's going to face this agony of a martyr's death. And he says, I will joyfully die for Jesus Christ, the one who died for me. Because he is why I live. And everything that I've taught is from Jesus, and I'm sticking to it. When the flames were kindled about him, he began to sing, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And so continued till his voice was silenced forever. But though his voice was silenced, his influence was not silenced. goes on to say in Great Controversy, Even his enemies were struck with his heroic bearing. A zealous papist, describing the martyrdom of Huss and of Jerome, who died the year after, said, Both bore themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns, and scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing." John Huss had the morning star. And when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. It doesn't matter if somebody's trying to put you to death. It doesn't matter if you're going to lose your job. It doesn't matter what you're facing with your family. If you have the morning star, you have enough. 
Because Jesus said in Psalm 1611, in my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you have Jesus, you have the joy that surpasses all understanding. So John Huss sealed his testimony being burned at the stake. And who knows how many thousands will be in heaven because John Huss was willing to stand. How about you? How about me? Am I willing to hold fast to Jesus? Am I willing to cling to the Bible in a time when the Bible is looked at as some fairy tale, when the Bible is looked at as a human book? Am I willing to say, this is the light and I have to have the Bible and the Bible only for my life? I have to be guided by the Bible. This is my morning star that leads me to Jesus. Will I cling to the Bible? Will I cling to Jesus? Will I have the morning star in my experience? That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what He wants for you. And I'm done hiding. I don't want to be one of those that covers up these little areas in my life, these little compromises, just saying, well, it's all right. I'll just go on with this because... Jesus says that one day we're all coming before that judgment seat. And those eyes of fire, they're consuming to sin. And I want to let Jesus separate that sin from me today rather than on the last day to be clinging to my sin as Jesus consumes my sin. How about you? Do you want to stand for Jesus because He stood for you? Do you want to cling to the Bible? Do you want to pray the prayer of the psalmist saying, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Look inside of me, Jesus, because if there's sin in here, it's got to go. Because I know it causes death. Please, Jesus, save me. If that's your desire, I want to invite you to stand with me. To stand for the one who went to the cross for you. To stand saying, Jesus, I want to allow you to search me with those eyes of fire, those eyes that see into the depths of my soul, those eyes of love that want to consume that which is harmful to me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're standing in all of our sin, recognizing that we're in desperate need of mercy. Like David, we've made all kinds of mistakes, but we want to, like David, ask you to search us, to know our hearts, to try us, to see if there be any wicked way in us, because eternity is far too long to waste it on one short life. Oh, Father, would you please give us more of Jesus? Would you give us a firmer faith? Would you search our hearts? Would you consume the stuff in us that separates us from Jesus? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.